Okay, so is it acceptable for a white person to have dreads if they convert to Rastafari? If <laughs> Rastafarianism, uh, in the same way that if like a white person converted to Muslim, they could wear hijab because it's a religious garment. Just like if a Middle Eastern woman became Christian, they could wear the typical nun outfit, whatever that's called. Habits. 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 For the same reasons. So is it acceptable for white people to have... Convert to another religion? And then adopt the things of the thing, like white people getting dreads for Rastafarianism. No, I mean, I don't think that it's even acceptable for... I don't think that it's even acceptable for white people to, like, look around them and choose some kind of exotic religious thought that uh, appeals to them and, you know, delve into that culture and insert themselves there when they have no... That was never part of their culture. That was never part of their upbringing or their mindset. <laughs> so it's like people who convert to, like, Buddhism or Hinduism and, uh, <laughs> convert to Buddhism or Hinduism and suddenly start, you know, thinking they can wear, like, a bindi and, you know, namaste and whatever. Like, it's just white, it's just the same colonial mindset that, like, you're entitled to anybody's identity. You're entitled to occupy any space if you want to in any part of the world. So, me being Native American and Mexican, or Native North American, um, I grew up Catholic, and I converted, uh, you know, I, I spent my teen years being atheist, looking at Taoism, Buddhism, stuff like that, I now have identified as a Zen Buddhist for about 11 years now, and I practice Zen Buddhism on the reg. I have my prayer beads, I have my stuff that I do, you know. I meditate regularly, etc. Is that inappropriate for me to do? Well, I would say that it's not as, as inappropriate as if I were to do it as a white person. Um, because you don't have the same um, social and historical like privileges that I do. And you, as a Native American and a Mexican American, uh, <coughs> you, oh, okay, <laughs> you, uh, blah, blah, blah. you're, you have a kind of like marginalized status that, that can benefit, I guess, in a way from, uh, learning about and observing other cultural rituals. But I still think that it's part of kind of, because because you did grow up in America, you know, and you grew up in white culture, you know what I mean? Um, in Western culture, I guess you could call it, which is also kind of a fucked up term, but whatever. Um, so it's like, you still kind of have a, you know, you still kind of have an advantage and you kind of have responsibility to not uh, use that privilege
privilege to, I guess, co-opt, you know, other marginalized identities. So, so just being marginalized comparatively doesn't make it okay to appropriate other types of, you know, marginalized culture, I guess. <laughs> what is it that defines appropriation versus, I mean, is the other aspect assimilation? If I... Right. So either appropriate or assimilate? Right. There's that. And then there's... Um, there's like appropriating, you could assimilate. There's also... Um, you know, a lot of people deal with it by being connected with their ancestral culture. Um, you know, black people addressing more African... Mexican people celebrating, you know, and and getting really into traditional, you know, Mexican rituals and dress and stuff like that. Chicano culture. Yes. And so, so some people do that, but I don't think that it's, no, like, I think that there's a middle ground where you can create your own culture you know, because, because, like, the, like, modern rule is complicated, right? Like, it's not like we're bound geographically to any particular place or, you know, and, like, even as an anarchist, I don't believe in, like, the nuclear family and stuff. You don't have to stay with your birth family, even. So, like, if you have a chosen family who is, you know, if you're Mexican and your chosen family is predominantly black, you know, do you partake in black culture? You know, probably. Um, or do you create something new out of it? And it's kind of a, a mixture of Chicano culture and black culture and maybe the white culture that you grew up with um, and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. So don't you become... So if you're white and you grew up in a black family. <laughs> as you get to do black things. That's the question, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you won't be identified. No. Like, you'll still just be a white person doing black things. Right. And unless think, people knew that background. Right, exactly. And that, to me, that's part of the problem is that even when you're part of the dominant um, culture, you don't have a choice but to be aware of your place in that group and to be aware of what the larger culture is and what it's doing so like even white people who grow up in black families or in a black neighborhood or something they know that they're white they know what that white people that there are more white people than black people you know and that um they are treated differently than black people. So they do kind of have a responsibility, I think, to reject um, the impulse to really, really engage heavily in black culture, you know, to, to Eminem the situation. <laughs> what if... So a big question that happens a lot with um, deportation stuff like that is things like when they say, oh, you know, send them back to Mexico because they're illegal or anchor babies or whatever, 
and they're told, you know, their response is, I don't know what that culture is like. My culture Yeah, is, I don't know what Mexico's like. Right. So, like, I don't, you know, why, why would you send me back? I don't know anything about it. I'm from here. Right. So, in the same application to um, a white person growing up in a black family, all they know is that black family. And so even though they might, they only know what it's like to be raised in a black, they're not raised black. I mean, right, exactly. they're white people being raised in a black family. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there will be parts of their, their psyche, you know, that they, that they obtained growing up that, you know, like they'll, of course they'll retain some level of black culture that they just don't know is black culture, you know? I didn't know that a lot of the things that my silly granny said were Irish culture (laughs) until I realized that not everybody's granny says those things. (laughs) Um, And uh, so, but I think it's, it's a matter of like the scale of the bubble, you know, like a Mexican person who grew up in America, even in, like let's say a Mexican neighborhood in America and they have no idea about you know how to live in Mexico like maybe they don't speak very good Spanish stuff like that it's my sister they they're in a much smaller bubble than or I guess a big bubble I don't know I don't know what that would be a small bubble I think because they're surrounded by white culture you know, they, it's ubiquitous in their life. They don't have any choice to reject or accept it or to move away from it. And in a lot of ways, their survival depends on adopting it, which is the nature of assimilation. Whereas, like, somebody who's white and grows up in a black family, like, of course, they'll, they'll, like I said, they'll have those things that they retain, but they don't have the same type of bubble. They don't have the same level of bubble that marginalized people do growing up within the dominant culture because they are the dominant culture, you know, because they do see people who look like them on TV and they see people who look like them owning businesses and, you know, holding political office and all these different things, you know. It's a lot of stuff that, a lot of ambient information that you get about people who look like you and who act like you that you don't even really notice but it it gives you a message in your head that's why like when people talk about like Dylan Roof who you know there were a lot of black people in his area you know he uh, he lived in uh, freaking Charleston you know and mm-hmm. he went to he went to the church that he shot up like he he practiced with those people and they accepted him and you know they I don't know they like they embraced him and he still couldn't help but harbor this like toxic white attitude that was everywhere around him you know what I'm saying? So, in the end, it was something weird, like, um, which he, is, huh? Well, he was trying to, trying to push Helter Skelter. Well, 
Well, he also had... What they find with shootings like this is that uh, there's a weird element of sexual frustration. And um, part of that is is the whole cuck thing, right? Like, so he was an incel? Dylan Roof was an incel? Well, he, he might... Yeah, he probably was an incel, kind of. I don't know that he identified like that, but there was uh, speculation that before the shooting happened, he had been pursuing this one girl and that she ended up dating a black man. And mm. so he kind of went on a tirade, you know, sim like similar to the Elliot Rogers thing of like, you know, girls are bitches, like you know, uh, black people are stealing our women kind of thing, you know, really old-timey southern, like, mythology, and it was after that, shortly after that sometime, that he went into his church, into the church that accepted him, and killed nine people that he knew, like, they knew him personally, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, why would you do that if you grew up you know, so close to this culture, because that culture is not it's not dominant over you. It doesn't hold as much influence on you. Um, your statement on ambient message, I so like where white people run everything. Mm -hmm. They're in everything, and so we see you watch TV. It's all white people. It's like um, like our friend said, you know, that they. They naturally liked seeing the black actors more because they were black. Right. So the black actors stand out. They're not ambient. They're like major points. Right. Um, it's major points when it's meant to be. But, in, you know, like with Black Panther and stuff, like, hell yeah, you know, everyone in the movie was black. Mm -hmm. And it was awesome. And, you know... Of course, it made black people feel a certain way um, because you don't see that. But before, there was a point, you know, before, I guess, the PC culture, before people got mad about these things where we just, you know, black people were only on TV as criminals and as rapists and drug dealers and pimps and prostitutes and... They died first in movies, you know? Like, that's still the stereotype, yeah. right? Like, Unless they were in black exploitation films. Yeah, and they, you know... So it's like there was this representation that they saw and that white people saw, you know, that people don't really think about what their media is telling them, you know? They think that they can just consume and, like, absorb it without you know, incorporating that information into them, but, but people have, there's this, there's this psychological thing that happens, uh, that we learned about in the class that I took about identity in film, and when people, people's, people's grasp of their immediate surroundings is so much smaller than their grasp of you know, the world, the amount of the world that can be encompassed by a technology like TV. Hmm. So, uh, when, before the internet happened, you know, people only had TV to use as reference for how other people behaved in other places, you know, like across the across their own country or across their own state. Mm -hmm. So if you're only getting messages that 
you know, most people, most married couples don't share a bed, you know, then, but you and your husband share a bed, you're going to feel like a freak, even though that's not actually how most people live because they're not showing that. Is the Flintstones? Flintstones were the first. Yeah, the first cartoon to show. The first anything that showed a shared bed. Yeah, that's right. The first any TV to show a married couple in a shared bed. Yeah. Um, and that was what, like the 60s? So, back to the, yeah, or something like that. When, I don't know when the Flintstones started. <laughs> um, like the 50s, I don't know. But yeah, so it's ambient for people who are, who are in the, the position where they can go through life and just feel normal, you know, and feel like, oh, this is just the way the culture is, you know? So, so when is it appropriation and when is it just ambient? If enough people, if enough white people converted to Rastafarianism and adopted dreadlocks, is it just become ambient? Or is it still appropriation? Eventually it'll become ambient because everyone's doing it. Um, well, no, I don't, I think that's not quite what I meant by ambient. Um, because that would be ubiquity that you're talking about. Hmm. Um, such as, um white people who uh, wear cornrows. You know what I'm saying? It's like pretty common to see white people wearing cornrows. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't stop it from being appropriation, you know? And when you look at what had to happen to lead to white people feeling like, yeah, it's okay for me to wear cornrows, you know? It's really ugly and it's really um, violent. And much in the same way that it's violent to consider what, you know, to consider the violence that caused the need for Rastafarianism, you know, in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like, like, as far as I understand Rastafarianism, it's a little bit like Zionism, kind of, in the sense of, like, you know, all Jamaican people are, you know, all people are united and all Jamaican people are united. And you know, we deserve Jamaica, we deserve to be in Jamaica, and, you know, this is us, like, we are Jamaica. Mm -hmm. So, for a white person to not only not know that, <laughs> but to think that they have a place, you know, in that ideology that was meant specifically to empower Jamaican people, <laughs> you know, in the midst of white violence... Um, it's egregious to me, you know, regardless of how many people do it, it's, it's always going to be violence, you know, it's always going to be a symbol of how, you know, we're entitled to any culture that appeals to us, any aesthetic that appeals to us, you know, anything to make us feel a little bit atoned for, for white violence, you know, it's like if we... If we get balls deep in Rastafarianism, you know, like, we're super down with black people, you know? Like, we we love black culture, and we love reggae, and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, but that's not, that's not what's happening, you know what I mean? It's like almost, to me, it's almost white guilt. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Hmm. Like, if I get so into this culture it absolves me of 
the guilt that I have by I association with my whiteness. So appropriation is like a uh, self-absolution? Yeah, I could. I would say that it's self-soothing or it could be self-soothing or it could be direct violence like the cornrows dreadlocks situation. Yeah, or you could just pay off your... <laughs> Wait, what is that? Uh, yeah, um... Steve mentioned your, what's his name? Up your vibrations with reparations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's like my favorite thing. All right, all right. Thank you, my baby. I love you. I love you.